Hello and welcome to Crossing Borders with Nathan Lustig, where I interview entrepreneurs doing startups across borders and the people who support them, with a focus on companies that have some relationship to Latin America. I first met my guest today, Brian Reckworth, at South by Southwest back in 2011, where he was on a panel talking about his experience co-founding Viva Real, Brazil's largest property portal. Think of it like Zillow or Realtor.com, but for Brazil. Originally from California, Brian always had a passion for traveling and entrepreneurship, and he put those two together when he set off on an adventure with a friend of his, driving all the way from California to Costa Rica, then on to Colombia. When he realized that working as an English-speaking call center attendant in Bogota only paid $300 per month, he knew he had to start his own business, which he did by knocking on doors in a used suit to get his first clients. After building multiple businesses that targeted both the U.S. and Latin American market, he realized he needed a scalable business in a big market and decided to move Viva Real to Brazil, where it's grown from four employees to over 600 today. We talk about how he got his first investor and mentor, what it's like starting up in Brazil as a foreigner, how he was able to raise $30 million in venture capital and expand to take over the Brazilian market. Brian's experience is unique because he's done business all across Latin America and was able to build a big, scalable business in one of the harder markets in the world. It was great reconnecting to hear his story, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with him as much as I did. Hey, Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Nathan. Thanks for taking the time to do it. So where are you in the world today? So I am in Santa Rosa, California today. Very nice. And are you from California originally? I am. I'm from just a little bit west of here in a small town of 7,000 people called Sebastopol. And I live here most of the year in Sonoma County. And so what's your main business that you're working on today? So today, the company that I started and was CEO of for about seven or eight years is Viva Real. And Viva Real is an online real estate marketplace focused on the country of Brazil. So we're the leading property portal with over 5 million property listings and 20,000 customers that advertise on our platform to the almost 20 million visits a month, people searching for real estate across the country. So how did a guy from a small town in California end up running a property portal in Brazil? Good question. It's not the first thing you think of in terms of what you're, you know, you do with your life, end up in Brazil building a business. But the kind of journey that took me down here was in 2003, a buddy of mine, we got in our car, drove from California to Costa Rica on a kind of a little journey trip. And then I bought a one-way ticket to Bogota, Colombia. And usually, you know, I'm no exception to this, but usually there's a woman behind me, a lot of these stories. And my wife today, we met in California, and then I went to go visit her in Colombia. And then my plan was to stay up for a few months. And then three months turned into seven years. We got married. And then I ended up starting a few different businesses in Colombia. And finally, you know, several years later, our business has evolved into what the business is today, Viva Real. That's the classic story of ending up in Latin America and getting married. Yep. That's what happened. I guess I'm cliche at this point. <laughs> and what made you and your friend decide to do that car trip, the road trip all the way down to Costa Rica? Yeah. You know, my goal was actually to get down all the way to Patagonia. So I guess I almost made it given that Sao Paulo was kind of our, our headquarters. And that's where I ended up spending six years after Colombia. I eventually moved to Sao Paulo and launched the business in Brazil. But really, just like an adventure, it was a good friend of mine. We, we traveled to other places together. And, you know, we had graduated from school and we just we saved some money up. And it was kind of just like 
our time to take an adventure where we didn't really have, you know, any other responsibilities. And it was the moment to just kind of like branch out and do something a little crazier. So that was the motivation of, of the trip was just kind of discovery. And had you been to Latin America before? So yeah, I actually spent a, a fair amount of time when I was in college, I ended up studying in Costa Rica several times. I lived in Buenos Aires for six months and I traveled to a few other kind of countries. So I, I had some quite a bit of exposure and actually studied Spanish in college. And so, you know, I didn't really know what I was going to do with it, but I knew that, you know, communication is kind of an important part of uh, doing business. And I always had kind of a, a few business bones in my body that were, you know, I always knew that were, I would kind of gravitate towards entrepreneurship at a young age. Were you the type of person that, you know, was always doing different entrepreneurial things growing up? Yeah, I did quite a bit of, you know, neighborhood type stuff. Yeah. What kind of stuff or what was the most fun? I'd say the most like kind of fun and like successful thing I did as a kid was in high school. I started a two things. One was a sports camp. So I had like these kids that would come over, you know, we, my brother and I, I had kind of a, you know, both sports guys. He played tennis. I swam and we basically had swim lessons tennis and a handful of other things. So at a pretty young age, we started the sports camp. And then I also teach taught swim lessons at our house because we had a pool. And so that was kind of my opportunity to make some money in high school. I had, I think over one summer during the peak, I had about 80 students throughout the summer that I taught swim lessons to. So it was good money for a 16, 17 year old. Oh, that's cool. And so you're pretty entrepreneurial and adventurous, sort of more than the average person in the US. Why do you think that was? I don't know, maybe just personality, like kind of curiosity. And, you know, I think I don't know what I attribute that to. I'd say definitely like some influence on my parents. We traveled a lot as a kid, so I had a lot of exposure. So I guess it's when they were uh, wishing that I was back home and not so far away, I kind of let them know that that, that might have been their fault, <laughs> given all the exposure that I had as a kid on family trips. So I'd say that was kind of a factor. And then, you know, I think maybe personality wise, too, I just I've always been kind of curious and really enjoy kind of putting myself in positions that are maybe like not super comfortable just so that there's an instant learning process involved. That's interesting. And I think that probably what fits well with why you ended up starting different businesses. Probably. Yeah. It's probably part of my personality. So you ended up in Colombia going to visit your now wife. What was mm -hmm. some of the first businesses that you started there? So when I moved there, the natural kind of thing to do was, well, first of all, I couldn't, like, I needed some money because the savings were dwindling and I couldn't really get a job. I think I actually went to a couple of job interviews. I went to a job interview, I remember at a call center and, you know, I, it was serving like English speaking, you know, people, you know, that took the call center in Bogota. And I remember I did the test and it was just like, read a paragraph in English. And I'm like, well, oh, that's pretty easy. <laughs> Everyone was really nervous. And I just had to, all I had to do was read a paragraph in English. And then I got the offer, you know, I'm like, and then when they told me what the salary was, I think it was at the time, it was like six, 700,000 pesos, which is like 300 bucks a month or something. You know, I was like, yeah, I don't really want to work for someone else for $300 a month. So uh, the natural kind of next step was uh, to teach English, given that I knew a lot of people would want to learn English and I needed to make some money. So I started a little company called English Without Borders, which pretty cheesy name, but we ended up, you know, getting a couple of customers. And originally I, I was teaching the classes and then I found out quickly that I wasn't a very good teacher and I hired some other people to do the classes. Were you teaching corporate clients yeah. or were you teaching just individuals? Yeah. Primarily corporate. Like I had some individual students, but then I kind of weave my way into a couple of corporate contracts. It's kind of a funny story. I ended up 
I had the only suit that, that I had, which was from the Salvation Army. I think I paid like $7 for it. It was like a little short on the cuffs, <laughs> but it was, you know, it looked nice. And, you know, Nordstrom suit looked nice, looked pretty clean. So I, I walked in to the, you know, the like the biggest building on the 7th Avenue, which is, you know, the kind of the main center for economic center in Bogota. And I kind of kind of weaseled my way in past security. And I just basically just made a stop at every store, every floor and tried to, you know, to kind of sell them my, my business English courses. I think I like, you know, I'd look at the name of the company and try to like determine if it was a, maybe a multinational company or, you know, and I remember I got to what I think was like the 16th floor and it was a stock brokerage. And I somehow like ran into the head of HR, like in the waiting area and, I was able to schedule a meeting to present to them and then I ended up getting my first contract. And that was like, you know, a way I sustained myself for the first almost year. And I hired someone else to teach those classes. And I think I taught one class. Uh, it worked out. It was a good little deal in the beginning. So you were literally knocking on doors to get your first clients. Yeah, like definitely just floor to floor, you know, and it was, it was a lot of, you know, a lot of people that said no. And then I finally got to the 16th floor and was able to coincidentally run into the right person. How many people do you think said no before you got to that yes? I don't know. I mean, it was definitely a, a large number because I remember I stopped at most floors on the way. So uh, maybe there was two companies on each floor. So some people just wouldn't let me in because <laughs> I usually get shut down at the front desk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the classic in Latin America where you can't get past the secretary. Yeah, exactly. They're kinetics, you know? <laughs> yep, they're tough. <laughs> yeah. So what did you do? Did you start another business after that? So. After that, and it's kind of funny, that actually leads into how I met my co-founder. I had this contract with this stock brokerage in Bogota. One of the executives at that company wanted to take German classes. And so he asked me if I knew a German teacher. And I didn't, but I just kind of you know, noted that. And I guess it was like the next week I was paying a fine in DAS, which is Departamento de Seguridad, I think it's called in Spanish, basically like the INS immigration. And I'd overstayed my visa, you know, my tourist visa. And and basically what happened was I saw a guy in the waiting area and he had a German passport. So I kind of just struck up a conversation with him because, you know, I said, by chance, you don't uh, want to teach some German classes. And, and so he, you know, he, he said, ah, you know, maybe I want to extend my stay. So I need some extra money. And so one thing led to another. We ended up meeting up like the next couple of days and we both found out we had an interest in technology companies and entrepreneurship. And he had more of a product engineering background. I had more of a sales and marketing background. And we, so we kind of put our heads together and started our first company that was called Col Connect, Columbia Connect. We basically, we were, the idea was just to basically to build websites. Uh, and that was in 2004. That's really interesting. So that's one of the more unique co-founder stories that I've heard meeting in the passport line to pay a fine. Yeah. So it was kind of serendipitous and kind of a funny, you know, he was paying a fine also for not having the proper stamp because he came in across the border, whatever, something silly. And so we were in this like extremely bureaucratic place, right? And, you know, waiting in line for hours. And then it just, one thing led to another and we struck up a conversation. And then pretty soon after that, we became business partners and, you know, kind of thought of a bunch of different things that we could do together. And, and then, you know, that's that. So for the website business, were you selling to the local market or are you selling other places? So when we started off, we started trying to sell websites in Colombia and we just realized that like, this is 2004, no one was willing to pay anything. You know, we actually, 
our first website we actually sold was it's kind of a funny story. We we sold there was this place called Unilag, which is basically where all the computer supplies are sold. It's like a kind of a mall for just computer supplies. But most of the computer supplies there, they're not really like registered, like the, all the transactions are like cash and it's it's kind of a little bit of a shady place. And I remember I met one of the shop owners and we wanted to build a website for him. And so we ended up selling a website and it's a lot to build like a kind of an e-commerce website. So we were able to find like a templated OS commerce website, you know, that we basically bought the template and then adjusted it to his needs. And, you know, we got our first check for that. And then I went to show up the next day, or I guess it was the next week after we'd kind of adjusted everything and kind of presented to him and collect the second half of the payment. And the guy had already like shut down his operation. He wasn't even there. And so that was our like moment. We're like, all right, maybe we need to think about our market. Like what's the market that we should be addressing? Cause this doesn't seem like it's a very solid market. And so the natural thing after that is, uh, you know, basically just like we evolved to thinking about selling in the U S and your natural inclination is just like start contacting people, you know, right. So we kind of dug into like people that either I went to school with or I friends, family. And coincidentally, I just contacted a place that I worked in high school every Christmas. I would work on a Christmas tree farm. And so I contacted the Christmas tree farm and that was our first website that we actually built. So it was a website for a Christmas tree farm called Frosty Mountain Trees. And we built a website for them. So very random. And then everything after that was just like random websites that we would do. But again, we kind of realized that that wasn't a very like scalable, sustainable business. And I think it took us about nine months, maybe a year to realize that we should focus on something that we can be more scalable. And and so that's when we actually kind of transitioned the business into focusing exclusively on building real estate websites. I had worked at a company when I was 19, I dropped out of school and went to and worked at a startup that built real estate websites for agents. And so we basically kind of copied that model. But our main differentiator was that we built them in Spanish and English. And then we targeted real estate agents that serve the Spanish speaking population in the US. It's a good model of being able to take advantage of knowledge you had before from real estate, plus also being in a Spanish speaking place. So you could you know, have that competitive advantage. That kind of allowed us to leverage. You know, so we ended up cold calling these real estate agents that we, it's kind of funny. We actually took the list of all of the real estate agents on like realer.com or, and we looked for all the names that sounded like they were Spanish, Gonzalez, you know, whatever. And we just would contact them. And it was our way of assuming that they might be servicing the Spanish speaking population in the US. So we built that business for a couple of years and built it up to like maybe 15, 20 people eventually became profitable. But then in 2008, the real estate crisis hit and that segment of the population got hit in, you know, particularly hard. And that was when we kind of realized that we had to reevaluate and also migrate to a business that wasn't just building websites, but you know, we needed to generate value and leads for those agents. And so that's when we actually kind of evolved to be virale in our thinking of more of a marketplace model rather than individual agent websites. So if you were doing agent websites in the U.S. for Spanish and English speakers, why did you first go to Latin America with Viva Real rather than thinking U.S.? We actually didn't. We actually started off with vivareal.us because I didn't have the domain.com. And we built a bilingual marketplace. So, you know, it was around the time Zillow and Trulia and these other real estate marketplaces raised a lot of funding. And so we, we wanted to focus on that niche. 
And we actually like, you know, we did pretty well initially. And I was on the board of the National Association of Hispanic Real Estate Professionals. And we kind of, you know, we were able to carve out a little niche. But and we actually started that a little bit before the kind of the real estate crisis. So we had kind of when we were building the websites, we realized that we needed to migrate to a, a marketplace model because, you know, we weren't generating enough value through the websites. And so we needed to figure out how to generate leads. So we consolidated the properties into one central marketplace. And that we started that in 2007, just in the U.S. Hispanic market. And then we started simultaneously looking at Latin America. And we actually we launched another website, which was Viral.net for the in English, focused on the expat community in Mexico, Costa Rica, you know, kind of those the Caribbean, those people that look to buy properties in Panama. And we launched so our, our Viveral marketplace in those local Latin American countries, but in English. So that was kind of the evolution of it all. Started with the Spanish in the U.S. And then it, we thought about Latin America, but doing it in English. And then we just really realized that, you know, we should be more focused on my original idea. Actually, I read a case study from Mercado Libre from Stanford. And I was like, wow, this is a really big business. And I saw that a huge proportion of their revenues came from Brazil and a few other high value markets. So our original idea was to become this, you know, kind of Mercado Libre of real estate where we would launch all these marketplaces in every single country. And then we soon realized that that's like super difficult and being in multiple countries is very difficult. So we decided to then become more of the Amazon, like focus on high value markets. You know, let's build them in Mexico, Colombia, Argentina, Brazil. And then we launched, you know, three websites, I think, in Brazil, Mexico and Colombia. And Brazil really took off at that point and it was kind of growing it much faster. We brought on a co-founder in Brazil that did extremely well. And then within two years after that, after we launched all three websites, we decided to go AAB all about Brazil. And that's when I moved to Brazil and that became, we shut the other sites down, relocated our Columbia office to Brazil. And then we decided to just singularly focus on the largest market. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges of operating in multiple countries across Latin America? Like you were in Mexico and in Colombia and Brazil all at the same time. Yeah. Well, it's just like in our business, given that it's got a, like a little bit of a brick and mortar component in the sense that you need to meet with the real estate brokers. And so there's like an on the ground piece. It's just like, it's just complicated to be managing multiple currencies, multiple like legal challenges of, you know, having an office, employees, and it's just really complicated. It, it was something that we, I kind of knew, but I look back and wish that I had been like, I knew instinctively that we needed to focus on Brazil and a high value market and it became more apparent over time. But when I looked at the size of the market and I saw that there's more real estate professionals in the state of Rio than the entire country of Colombia, that was kind of like, I sat down and I wrote this analysis, like kind of an assessment of, you know, what the opportunity cost of being in all these countries is. And I just think it took me a long time to kind of pull the trigger on exiting those those markets, but just the complications of different languages, in this case, you know, Spanish and Portuguese, multiple like legal entities, currency, all those things are just make it really complicated. Also, given it's not like any just like an online play only, you know, how did it feel as a founder and also with your team making that decision to close off Colombia where you got in your start and then make the jump to Brazil? Yeah, I agonized over it. And it's one of those kind of decisions where, you know, it was something that 
I worried about and I felt bad about. And, you know, and then I finally just, we just finally made the decision and we laid off almost everybody in Colombia and we gave a few, like a handful of the best engineers an opportunity to go with us to Brazil. And yeah, I think we ended up taking four of the engineers with us. And what was really complicated was, you know, just having the concern and feeling like, you know, that you're kind of letting these people down. What I soon realized and, you know, with a little bit of time after that decision became clear is that everybody really absorbed fine. And I just last week talked to one of the people that, you know, worked with me in Colombia and she, you know, she worked at Mercado Libre and then she's looking for, you know, a new job now. But like her position in all the other companies in the last six, seven years, she's just she's done extremely well. One of the other guys that I worked with is now leading, you know, small, medium businesses in Brazil for Facebook. So like you worry about those things. But in fact, I think we ended up being a good jump off point for other people. And, and, you know, I think that if I could go back, I wouldn't have agonized so much about it and been a little bit more just kind of not delay it as much as I did. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things that I've seen with U.S. and European founders that end up in Latin America is just the fact that you're bringing in a lot of knowledge of how do startups work in the States or in Europe and then teaching that to your employees. Then they end up going on to working for amazing companies after that or starting their own thing. Yeah. And where it is today, like where the startup ecosystem is, like there's just a greater demand. So all those people having had some experience, given that there's not like a ton of people that have had operations experience in a startup, they, they actually, it's attractive whether they join another startup or a big company because big companies are finding themselves like needing people that are startup people to kind of affect change. So I talked to a lot of mostly Latin American entrepreneurs that come either are in our portfolio or are applying to get funding from us that they know that they probably should go to either Brazil, Mexico, or the US, but they just can't seem to pull the trigger, can't seem to be convinced to do it now. They want to wait a year or they want to wait a year and a half or whatever it is. What advice would you give to them about one, what they should think about, and then two, why they should pull the trigger faster? Yeah, I mean, it all depends on everyone and their stage of their life, right? And their risk tolerance and like whether they have families and all those other things. I mean, I was very fortunate that I had an extremely patient wife that was, was like down to go on the journey with me. But I don't know if everyone else, not everyone has that kind of situation where they're, you know, able to have someone that's willing to kind of, you know, go on that journey with them. But if you're like, you know, really young and you're, you know, you're single and you don't have any kids, I think that it's to me, it's a no brainer to if you're an entrepreneur to go out and just like test the waters and move to another place. And there's a window where it's like the risk is extremely low and the reward is really high, not from a financial standpoint of like a successful business, but the reward of life experience and just the growth that's going to happen. So aside from all the financial opportunities of building, you know, a business in one of these larger countries in Latin America, and the potential there, it's just an incredible experience for a young person. And the growth is accelerated fivefold probably by just picking up and having to start something in another country. And there's just all these learning experiences that you can't experience unless you, you go do it. So let's talk a little bit about those first learning experiences that you had and the life experience of moving to Brazil. Without, you didn't speak Portuguese yet, did you? Not really. I had taken two semesters randomly of Portuguese I traveled to the country and like realized that I could 
since I spoke Spanish that I could like kind of communicate a little bit. And so, and I've always been like a real traveler and lover of culture. And so that was something that I knew I had a kind of an ability to pick the language up, but I really didn't speak much. You know, I struggled in the beginning in particular. To, it's frustrating. It's extremely frustrating to try to communicate what you want. And Brazil isn't exactly a place where everyone speaks English. You know, it's, it's not like, I don't know, Costa Rica or, you know, somewhere else where there's maybe more kind of Panama, more exposure to foreigners. So what was the first step? You arrived, you and your co-founder, with four engineers from the team in... in so the first step was in 2009, before we actually kind of exited the other businesses and we launched in Brazil, I was fortunate enough to, in 2008, I reconnected with Diego Simon, who is Brazilian, and he reached out to me randomly on LinkedIn. We'd studied together in Buenos Aires. And... He took the, the class list and just like added everyone on LinkedIn. And so I got his message and I'm like, oh, you know, I was headed to Argentina for Christmas and New Year's was going to be in Brazil. And I was already decided on launching this business in Brazil. And so I ended up, you know, getting this message and I'm like, hey, you know, like, thanks for reaching out. Like, you know, I didn't really remember him. He didn't really remember me very much, but I had an interest in Brazil since I was planning on starting a business there and we'd already getting ready to launch the website. And so I just kind of like, you know, hey. I told him, hey, we're looking to do this. And if you know anyone or if you have any advice or any feedback, and he proved to be like really proactive in, and interested. And, you know, he's been working for his family company, but he wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. And so he kind of just did like pro bono work for us for a few months and like, you know, researching things and translating stuff. And then Thomas and I kind of looked at each other and said, hey, you know, Diego's great. We should figure out how to bring him on. So we ended up giving him some equity and making him a co-founder of the business that got us started in Brazil. And that was in 2009. We launched the website like in April, May 2009. And he spent a month, the first quarter of 2009 in Colombia with us. We sent him back kind of on a handshake and a little bit of money to cover the first three months and kind of went to town. So that was from that standpoint, he was able to kind of like do the initial things while I was, you know, kind of supporting him you know, managing the engineering, my co-founder Thomas and I managing the sales and engineering and everything in Colombia, building the products. And then we had a website in Mexico. But so it was a two year period where I would just travel to Brazil. I would talk to him, you know, fly down, stay at his apartment for a month and, you know, sleep on his couch, all that stuff. But then in 2011, when we decided to go AAB all about Brazil, I, I moved indefinitely in January 2011. But he was really critical for the first two years in particular, I mean, and afterwards, but the two years where we didn't know anyone, we didn't know how to set up a business, you know, I didn't really speak the language very well. So hiring everything. And so he was like an absolute kind of critical piece to that. And had you raised any money yet at that point? No, not really. I mean, yes, an important kind of like person in the story is also my college roommate, when we were in San Diego, we both kind of had this, like we did a lot of entrepreneurial kind of stuff together, started a few little micro businesses in college. And so we both like were really supportive of each other's kind of, of entrepreneurship. And he actually left while we were in college. He worked on a business plan, moved to, to London with another roommate we had who was Dutch, and they started a ticket marketplace. The business ended up doing really well. They bootstrapped it. They raised you know, a couple million bucks and they sold it to Ticketmaster. And the transaction happened kind of right before all the whole like crash. And he made a bunch of money and 
you know, at that time he was 27 years old and didn't really know what, you know, what he wanted to do. And I had been talking about kind of the transition from building websites and real estate websites and marketing to more of a marketplace model. And we launched our website in the U.S., launched our website, kind of the expat market in Latin America. But we need to like fully transition our business to this marketplace model and launching these countries. And so he actually, along with myself and my dad, the three of us financed kind of the transition of the business and very painful kind of like every month, you know, putting in each of us would put in like seven grand, kind of cover the costs and the transition. And we really bootstrapped it for quite some time with the exception of some family friends money. I think we raised like maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars at that point. My friend James that had sold the company, he put like kind of an irrational amount of money in at that point. You know, he wrote a check for I think $250,000. And so, you know, we didn't take any institutional or any kind of like professional investor money. A handful of the people that maybe gave us checks of 25 grand that were like friends and family. And the first kind of like more official round we raised, we did raise like our two kind of most critical investors that we got outside of the family friends were two people. One guy by the name of Simon Baker. Simon Baker was a the former CEO of a company in Australia does the same thing we do. Today it's a you know it's a six, seven billion dollar market cap company. And he was the CEO during eight years. And I in two thousand nine, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, when we were planning on launching Beaverell, I contacted him and I pitched him. I can tell you a funny story about how that happened and what the result of that was, but basically it didn't pan out. But I kind of harassed him for a couple of years and I finally got him to write a check. And once I got the former CEO of this big company in our space to write a check, you know, the other kind of investors were easier to line up. Simultaneously, I'd been talking to this guy named Greg Waldorf, who today is like a real key mentor for me. And he's on my board. He was one of the first investors in Trulia. And so he knew the space a little bit. And so he kind of invested right around that time. And then after those two guys invested, it was much easier to raise money. I think our first kind of eight round was a little over a million bucks. And then, you know, we kind of followed on with, with some institutions a little after that. So, yeah, I want to hear the funny story of how you got the guy in Australia to invest. Yeah. So I'll tell you the how I didn't get him to invest first, <laughs> since I was kind of a rookie and definitely had didn't have a lot of knowledge about talking to investors or raising money. I reached out to him randomly on Facebook and surprisingly, he responded to me. He had just left his post as CEO of this big company. You know, it was a billion dollar company. And I said, hey, I see you're going to be speaking at this conference in San Francisco. I was in Colombia. I said, I'd love to meet with you. And so he's like, he responds to me. I'm like, oh, crap, I got to get a ticket now and go meet him in in San Francisco. So I flew out there. We had a meeting, at you know, kind of an informal chat at a a cafe. And we scheduled a follow up meeting for a couple of days later. And I was to go deeper into like our plans. So in our second meeting, I think James Gray and I, the guy that had invested some money already in the business, we kind of put together a plan and we had, I had been like memorizing a bunch of data points about Latin America from like Wikipedia, like very, you know, shallow kind of understanding of the business. And basically we, at the time we had this like crappy website with like 20,000 visits for the U.S. Hispanic market. And we're like, we're going to build this big business and, you know, all of Latin America. And so at the end of the conversation, he'd taken notes throughout the whole chat. And he, you know, he asked the big question. So how much money are you looking to raise? You know, what's, what's the valuation and kind of like swallowed, kind of took a big gulp and pulled a number out. And I said, we're looking to raise a million dollars at a 6 million pre. And he he kind of like 
looked up at me from his notebook, you know, kind of like paused, looked back at his notebook, slammed the notebook shut. And he's like, yeah, I think it doesn't make sense to keep talking. And he abruptly kind of got out of there, reminding me that we're in the worst kind of economic crisis and the real estate market is in the dumps and, you know, you're crazy, basically. <laughs> so that was kind of a, I really felt like I blew it. And like the seasoned veteran I was at the time, I literally got on the phone and called him like later and I said, hey, hey Simon, how about five million? You know, thinking that <laughs> I could just drop the valuation and he'd be all over it. And, you know, he wouldn't return my phone call after that. So that was my like kind of harsh reality and kind of rude awakening to trying to raise money. And basically, I ended up kind of harassing him for two years after that, two and a half years. And it kind of comes around full circle because in 2011, I think in January, I finally told Diego, I said, hey, Diego, let's just bring him to Brazil. Let's just you know hire him as a consultant and we'll kind of learn from him. And so we invited him down. We had an arrangement where I would pay him like five grand or something to spend two days with us. And a week before he arrived, you know, at this time I was sleeping on Diego's couch. I said, Diego, how the hell are we going to pay this guy? You know, like we're, I'm not paying myself a salary right now. We don't have a lot of cash. Can't really afford this. And so we had the idea of creating an event five days before where we would basically, you know, invite all of the top real estate companies to hear this kind of world renowned speaker. We kind of marketed him as, you know, the leading expert in real estate marketing and technology. We invited all the top companies, held an event at his hotel. And sure enough, a hundred people showed up, paid an entrance fee. We even lined up some sponsors. And so I think that was, you know, after I'd been harassing him for two and a half years, trying to get him to invest when he kind of came down, saw Sao Paulo, that it's like, you know, a huge city and there's, you know, these companies and they're willing to pay to hear someone speak. I think he saw the opportunity and he ended up writing us a check right after that. So, and ironically, it was almost the same valuation that I originally asked for. <laughs> That's an amazing story. So kind of full circle and more important than the money, this guy ended up being like just an incredible resource for us. I, as part of his investment, I locked in six visits to Sao Paulo. And every time he would visit, we would just go deep dive in the business. And he really, really lined out an amazing playbook for us that we followed to the T. Can you talk about the importance of having somebody like that either on your team or that you can call up for your startup? Incredibly valuable. You know, I'd say both those two guys were just, just amazing resources for me. Uh, Greg and Simon, they were like great mentors. Simon was very like specific on execution stuff. So that was like really helpful because as an entrepreneur, you're constantly thinking about, oh, is this the right thing? You're doubting yourself. And I think that this, what it did is alleviated some of the doubt and like some of the discussion and speed is one of the most valuable assets of a startup. And so it helped us kind of move quickly and not overthink things. And I mean, I remember one time when one of our big competitors ended up buying a company, which was a data provider, and they would send the properties to the different portals. And we had a lot of listings from them and they bought the company. And I was like, oh, crap, like this is, you know, we're, we're kind of screwed because what if they cut off the listings, et cetera. And basically I called him and he was I forgot that he was in Australia. And so I woke him up in the middle of the night and I said, hey, Simon, you know, this happened. This, they bought this company. And he said, can I go back to bed now? <laughs> and so it was a real, you know, nice kind of reminder that like, just the experience and the knowledge, you know, he was able to communicate, hey, this is not a big deal and here's why. 
and just don't lose any sleep over this. And so having those kind of mentors and guidance was really critical. Can you talk a little bit about scaling a business from pretty small to very big in a country like Brazil? What are some of the challenges that you had to overcome? I mean, scaling wise and going from this, you know, I think that there was definitely a clear moment for me where I realized that this is like a, a company that is, you know, bigger than originally thought. And I think as part of that process, the moment when you realize you don't know everyone's name anymore is, you know, right around like whatever, 50, 50 people, 60 people. That becomes kind of like this, you know, this feeling where you're just like, oh, this feels like it's a startup, but it's not like a project. It's a company. And some of the things that I wish that I had done better in retrospect, and I think that we were very obsessed about the culture in the company. And we did a, I think we did a good job, particularly in the early days. And then I think there was a gap where we you know, probably like scaled really fast. And, you know, we raised a lot of money. So when we piled on the, the big rounds, we, you know, we just hired like crazy. And I wish that I would have gone a little slower one, but also just really remembered the importance of the culture and kept that continue to communicate like we used to when we were 30 people, 40 people, 50 people, you know, we would have constant kind of all hands meetings with, you know, and it was like everyone would just get in one room and we'd talk about progress and we talk about what's important. And that was something that we just did constantly in the beginning. And I think when we got bigger and we had multiple offices and that became something that was just harder to do or just required a different strategy. And I think there was a gap of like probably 18 months where I feel like I just kind of dropped the ball on that, that I wish I would have done a better job of. And then we ended up like kind of going back to that, you know, and maybe in 2014, 2015, and it was like it became super focus emphasis and we kind of were able to recover that. And it was good that we had a good foundation of culture, like at the very beginning, because, you know, those things become when you don't put the you know, you don't water the grass for a little while. The roots were there. And so like the roots of the tree were good, but there was some tending that needed to happen. We need to do a better job of kind of taking care of those things. And so that's one thing that I we struggled with, I think. I think most startups, you know, have have some issues around that uh, that are growing really fast. And how many uh, people did you grow to from you said around 30 to what where it started to become a big problem? We went from like 50 to 200 really fast. Yeah, that's fast. That's a lot yeah. of people in 18 months. Do you have any specific strategies that you would have wished you would have used at the time that you think other people that are going to go through similar sort of scaling would find? I mean, find I would just encourage people to like continue the conversation with the company about we had always a culture of like openness and transparency. And so like just communication is one of the things that most is like most painful, I think. And so just like continuing that the spirit of openness and communication about, you know, what's important, you know, that's something that I wish we I'd done a better job as CEO. I wish that I'd kind of put that front and center and not been so obsessed with the growth, even though, you know, it's easy to it worked out for us. Right. So it was but I think I just, you know, could have done a better job of that thing. Other things like, you know, I think that, I mean, I think that's like the, the number one thing for me is just the constant communication about those things, particularly to like the different leaders of the teams and just like emphasizing those things. Because what happens is you create this like separation of you and then the other people that you hire that are a few direct reports away from you. And so it's hard to kind of maintain control if you don't really obsess over making sure that this is like front and center for the business. And then I guess another thing is that 
one thing I started doing more was just like going deeper in the org and having more conversations with people deeper in the org, which I think is important to do and not like lose touch with that. And like, you know, hear people's experiences kind of deeper down in the org where when you have like, there's several like direct reports between you and someone else, you know, you tend to just like, some people are good at managing up, but they're not good at managing down. And so you don't really realize that until we're managing the side and you don't really realize that until you kind of like go down the org. So I wish that I probably done a little more of that, that I, you know, I think that I started doing that at one point, but I think that's important. Other things that the scale kind of, yeah, I mean, not forgetting to communicate the purpose around the company and not losing sight of that. And, you know, the people that joined the company in the beginning, they kind of know it. And you got to make sure that you create one multipliers, but two, that you're continue to be the voice there. And how many people are played at Vireal now? So throughout our like company, Vireal, and then we've acquired two companies and then we have another company that we've kind of incubated. We're about 600. So did you have a similar sort of growing pains going from two to six? Or now that you had already gone one big jump, it was more or less the same? It definitely doesn't get easier. It only gets more difficult. I'm still kind of reflecting on all these things. And it's still like, you know, this is still, I'm at a moment right now where I'm, I've recently become the chairman of the company in the last middle of last year, about a year ago, I moved from CEO to chairman. And so I've had more time to think about it. And I, I talked to the CEO very often and I go to Brazil every kind of two months and spend time with the team there and go to board meetings. But, you know, I think I'm still kind of in this like reflection stage right now of what are the things that I wish we had done differently. And what were the challenges kind of in that? One of the things that, and I don't know if this is like more of a, a specific problem that I struggled with, but I think that for a non-technical kind of CEO, just like the product engineering piece is really hard. And everyone I talk to almost that is, you know, that's building a tech company, they struggle with their ability to kind of execute and build the team properly and have the right kind of accountability. And I think that's something that I struggled with a lot as CEO. And I think that really it took us maybe a year ago, like even when I was kind of on my way out, maybe like the last semester before I left for us to kind of start figuring out and doing a better job there. But I think that building that kind of layer of management is really hard. My experience was that, you know, a lot of the engineers, they didn't like this management piece. And, you know, there's there's like a resistance there. And particularly as a startup where like the needs are different in the beginning and the way you scale is different, you can't. You know, when it's just a couple of people building a product, it's just easier because your communication's there. You can go sit down and talk to other people in departments and it's just like information flows much easier. And then people also have like more, they shoulder more responsibility. And as you grow the organization, people will become more finite in what they focus on. And you need to figure out a way to kind of scale. And so the management layer is super important. And so I think that I did a really bad job of that. And and I think it's funny because throughout the organization, there's like phases, I feel like, where we maybe we were more kind of tightly micromanaging teams in the beginning because we had like focus was so important because we had limited number of resources. Then when you raise money, you have this like influx of capital that basically allows you to do more things or it gives you the illusion that you can if you have twice as much money, you can do twice as much stuff. And that's a dangerous kind of proposition because you really can't double your capacity overnight. It's something that just like you kind of inch along rather than snap your finger. So that was hard for us to like get the right balance and stay focused. We don't have money. 
I think focus is super easy because you die if you don't focus. Let's talk about some of the capital that you used to grow the business and start to make it go faster. So you raised money both from local institutions in Brazil and from abroad, right? Yeah. And so can you talk about the process of deciding to do both Brazil and abroad and what that was like? Well, I think that like the way that I think about the capital raising for the way I thought about it for Viveral was I think of four different buckets. I think of the first bucket as those Simon Baker, Greg Waldorf, like people that were angel investors that could have an impact in a couple different ways. One, Simon, in my case, he had the operational expertise. And so we gained all kinds of insight into how to build the business. Greg had more of like an experience as being a CEO mentor and also could really help with stage financing because he had connections with deeper pocketed VCs and he had credibility there. So those two buckets were really important kind of initially to set the right kind of foundation. And then on top of that, the recipe that I kind of found and a little bit of retrospective rationalization because you know I like to say that I had this like vision of all this, but really just kind of instinctually started coming and happened by chance in, in some respects. But the necessary component of having a local investor, given that I'm an American doing business in Latin America, you know, in Brazil specifically, there's some, you know, some challenges and wanting to have a local partner was really critical. And so the way I thought about that was I basically, I was fortunate enough to find two really good local investors in Monashis and Kazek. Monashis is a Brazil-based fund. They've been around for a while and they're definitely a top tier fund in Latin America. And Kazek is, you know, those guys from Argentina, the former Mercado Libre guys. And, you know, they're also top tier. I'd say those are the two top funds in Latin America. And they offer, they bring different things to the table. And so I was able to line up the, what I consider to be the best funds that would kind of block other potential companies. And I was able to leverage the local contacts of Monashis in hiring and the experience of Kazek in building a business at Mercado Libre to lean on them products and just like, you know, other insight into building a company. And so that was kind of the other bucket was local investors. And then the fourth bucket would be, you know, institutional capital that could provide deep pockets. And, you know, we've raised money from several hedge funds. And in fact, what's been a nice cherry on top is that sometimes with this late stage capital, you don't really expect much besides money. But we've been really fortunate to have investors that not only are just you know have access to capital, but they're they're also like very engaged and they're helpful in a lot of different ways. One of our investors, Valiant, there's a, a partner there named Eduardo who's been like you know he rolls his sleeves up and you know looks at challenging problems and you know has been a big help for me and and some of the other funds have also kind of been able to assist in a lot of ways. So you know I kind of looked at it in those four buckets operators. You know another guy, Sean De Gregorio, was the CEO of I Property in Asia in Malaysia, Singapore. So he was also an investor. I flew out and visited him while he was CEO and learned a ton from him, Simon, operator. And then the other bucket, Greg, you know, seasoned angel investor, CEO, and great help with access to stage financing. And then local partners to help with recruiting and all those other things. And then the deep-pocketed investors. So there's like kind of those four buckets. What advice would you give to the founders that maybe have raised, you know, their first sort of seed rounds for like maybe magma portfolio companies that have raised seed round from us and maybe are looking for that next kind of growth capital. How should they think about doing that when maybe they have bases across Latin America? I think like my advice, and if I were to be like a US investor, I would probably 
most U.S. investors would be co-investing alongside like a local fund, right? So I think it's really critical for a local fund to have, you know, to be really involved because I think that the U.S. funds find comfort in that. And there's, you know, funds that kind of have a reputation of being able to have a good track record. So I think that parting up the local fund in market is really important, I think. At least it was for me. And that's probably even more important for like a first-time entrepreneur. And, you know, I mean, look, at there's other like general thoughts on this. Obviously, you want to find great investors that are that can help in different ways. And but more than anything, like you just want to find great people like the partners have to be just great people that you respect and like. Of course, one of the challenging things is if you're like, you know, struggling to raise money, you know, you can't really be as demanding. Right. Like you kind of just got to like if you need money for your company and your business requires growth capital or venture, you know, and unless you're like really killing it, it's hard to just walk up and raise around really easily. So, but if you have choice, then, you know, you, you want to be selected with the type of investor and understand the philosophy of the investor, understand kind of what their objectives are, what their expectations are. I think those are all great conversations to have. And those are fine conversations to like ask the investor so you can kind of better understand what the mentality is. But the best thing to do would be to ask other entrepreneurs what they're like to work with and gauge because the, the entrepreneurs are the best. You know, that's why these funds, their reputation is really hangs on the experience that the founders have working with them. Going back the other way, what about U.S. investors? Why should they be looking at companies that are doing business in Latin America like yours? I mean, I do think that there's an incredible opportunity that it's in its early, it's in its infancy regarding kind of the ecosystem. And so it's undoubtedly like there isn't a ton of companies like there is in the U.S. or in Europe that have matured. But, you know, it's kind of a frontier market. But, you know, if you look in Brazil, you know, there's, you know, you've got 99 Taxi, which, you know, took in 200 million recently from, you know, DD and a few other funds. There's, you know, New Bank, you know, big company. There's a really a handful. And in the other markets as well, you know, in our space, Mercado Libre bought Portado Mundiario. I think they paid a pretty good amount of money for that. So there's definitely activity. And, I think that as a, from an investor standpoint, I would say it's less competitive to get into deals. And from that standpoint, I think that there's a growing number of entrepreneurs that are, you know, are building businesses, not only for like their country, but for the region and for the U.S. And so I think it's definitely an attractive market. I think that if you're going to invest, I would come in with the mentality of committing to the market and committing kind of for the long term. And I think it's a matter of time. Yeah, I think you're right on the matter of time. I mean, it's just clear that tech will eventually do what it's done in the US and Europe and Asia and Latin America, and it's already sort of starting and just takes a while to get things to really start to go. Yeah, I'm definitely next 10 years, I'll be investing much more in, in Latin America, probably. And so what advice would you give to yourself going all the way back to when you were first starting that first business in Columbia knocking on doors in the office tower to teach English, knowing what you know today? I would say probably the stress that mounts up and maybe not just in that first business, but like all the different businesses and all of the all the pressure that you put on yourself. I mean, I think that from one standpoint, it's like a great motivator. But, you know, I think that I wish that I'd been a little bit more healthy in my kind of living sometimes. And the, you know, kind of psychological kind of anxiety that's created for an entrepreneur. Like I just, I wish I had a little bit more clarity that things would work out, but 
you know, you don't really know that. And so maybe I wish I would have developed better mechanisms and probably wish I would have like, you know, the only people I could talk to were like, you know, a friend of mine, family, and I didn't have a lot of like, you know, people that I could share the experience with. And so I think that's one thing that at an earlier stage, I would have found more of a group of people that I could count on to share and be vulnerable with so that I could kind of offload some of the stress and get reinforcement that, hey, this is going to work out. This is someone maybe that had experience going through the same thing I did that could tell me that there's light at the end of the tunnel and that's not a train. And do you have any books, blogs, or podcasts that you would recommend to people that helped you through your journey? The single most impacting book that I read is The Hard Thing About Hard Things with Ben Horowitz. I mean, it's just like, I still go back to that book. I still like, you know, revisit some of the chapters. And it actually just really kind of, when I read that book, it kind of devastated me because I had realized that I was going through a lot of the same things and that I, you know, was not really taking care of myself and that the stress level kind of exploded when I read that book because I'd been kind of putting this, suffocating this difficulty and not like exploring it and releasing some kind of stress. And so it was just building up and building up over years. And even though on the surface, the company looked really successful, there was a time where I really realized that I was struggling and that I needed to figure out a way to kind of deal with that. And so the struggle is real. And I think that just hearing someone else's perspective allowed me to know and understand that like I'm not kind of alone in that. And so I think that would be one of my advice. So my advice to other entrepreneurs is that the struggle is real and that, you know, finding people that have been through that, whether they can be your advisors or get someone on your board or somebody that can speak to that through experience will be an incredibly valuable opportunity for you to bear this, weather the storm. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that pretty much everybody that has gone through that, that started a business. And that's one of the goals of this podcast is to get the stories out of people that are operating in Latin America. And pretty much everybody has that same sort of story where they didn't really know who to talk to. They're putting all that stress on themselves and just took a long time to sort of be able to, as you put it, be more vulnerable with someone else, either on their board of advisors, other entrepreneurs, or even just with family and friends. Yeah. It's hard when you have investors too, because you don't want to show weakness. So you've got to figure out a way where you can, you know, find and surround yourself with people that you don't want to have to totally fake it till you make it because that's kind of a, it's a hard thing to kind of maintain forever. Yeah. It's impossible. Yeah. So what's next for you and for Villarreal? <laughs> so company's going great. You know, I, I can't talk about some of the details, but you know, we've continued to grow at a nice clip despite the economic situation and political situation in Brazil. Uh, so, you know, we've got some exciting stuff on the horizon, but really my focus all along has been just build value. And if you do that, good things will happen. So, you know, I can't speak to any specifics, but we're in a great position right now with kind of a, a solid balance sheet and a big market and growing. So I like the prospects of what we're doing. My time is spent, you know, primarily on Viveral, but I'm kind of taking a sabbatical from an operations role right now. So I'm just kind of evaluating what I'm going to do next. And in the meantime, just continuing to support the CEO of Viveral and the team. So uh, we'll see what happens, but you know, probably next year I'll think about what I want to do next and see if I have another business in me or what. I'm not making any decision right now and enjoying this time where I'm not, you know, in the day to day of building a company, which you know is, is taxing over time. Yeah, it's good to take a break. Absolutely, family time for now. For sure. 
So you mentioned one thing about you know the political and economic situation in Brazil, and what we see, you know, Chile's had a much less sort of severe economic downturn, Argentina also, Colombia. And what we've seen with our companies, it's actually an advantage because you can get really talented people that otherwise would be working for high salaries in, in bigger companies. And the bigger companies are actually, you know, they have to watch what they were spending on marketing or watch what they're spending on sales. Have you seen that similar thing in Brazil? I would just make a comment about that. The great thing about the last kind of five or six years even is that there is a, an evolution of people that have gone from, you know, working at like the big banks and consulting firms to kind of embracing the startup world. So what you didn't see seven or 10 years ago is people like really, really smart, capable people joining those startups. And now, you know, it's kind of cooler to be in a startup. And so and that, you know, given that the economy isn't as, as strong, people are kind of willing to take more risks, I think. And so I, I definitely think that part of it is culturally like it's more acceptable and it's become cooler. And two, like the number of opportunities in banking, for example, is, has diminished significantly. So those people that would typically go into that field are more attracted to the startup and they're willing to take equity and invest in the project. So I think that's something that's definitely kind of evolved over the last you know, five years, I'd say. I think that's right. And it's really building upon the foundation that companies like yours and Mercado Libre and others across Latin America have started to put down so that the next generation can start to come up. And I'm pretty bullish on the Latin American ecosystem. Yeah, me too, man. I believe. And as you said, it's a matter of time and it helps to have those success stories. Mercado Libre is an amazing trailblazer, but there'll be other companies that you know follow in their footsteps and you know, like in our case, we were inspired by Mercado Libre when, you know, that was kind of one of the ideas we had when we read the case study. So it's a snowball effect and it's just, it's a maturity of the ecosystem, and, but it's in its early, early years here, but, you know, a good time to be there. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, thanks again for taking the time sure. to be on the podcast. I really enjoyed hearing your story. It's been fun because we have a portfolio company that the founder who was on episode two of the podcast has like a very similar story to yours in that he's building websites and from Argentina for the local market, then the US, and then did a property portal. Not nearly as successful as yours yet, but it's very fun to hear that you guys have kind of followed the same trajectory. Appreciate yeah. taking the time. Oh, absolutely. Thanks a lot. And yeah, good luck with everything. And let's stay in contact. For sure. Have a good rest All of your right. day. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Crossing Borders with Brian Reckworth from Viva Real. I hope you enjoyed his story. If you did, please feel free to give me a rating on iTunes and on Stitcher. And think about subscribing and recommending this podcast to a friend. Thanks again. 